According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in Philippians chapter 4. Picking up where we left off Sunday morning. Philippians chapter 4. After urging Yodi and Syneke to uh, live in harmony, indeed true companion, Zizigus, I was actually kind of uh, enjoyed the fact that I found Zizigus as a uh, dictionary entry in a couple of my resources in the Logos Bible software, so that was pretty cool. Finding people that didn't even view it as a theory, just took it as an accepted fact that this is a proper name and not, uh, not a description. But uh, anyway, so had some fun with that. We're now looking at the seven imperatives of verses four and following. And so this is really the how-to. Since we're told to stand firm in the Lord in verse one, we now have a, a recipe, if you will. These are the ingredients of standing firm. And so we've got seven uh, imperatives, and the first two of which are rejoice. From verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Before we get started tonight, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you tonight thankful for your truth, thankful for your faithfulness. Father, calling upon your faithfulness this evening to open the eyes of our understanding, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you for the living and abiding word of God. It is alive and powerful today as it's ever been. And uh, we call upon uh, just the, the, the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, to teach us what we need to see this evening. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, microphone runner is ready, so uh, we'll start with Doug. Doug gets our lead-off question here tonight. Uh, go to Revelation 20. Revelation 20. Uh, specific verse is 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Uh, earth and heaven had already fled away. So this, what sea is, is being talked about there? Yeah, what sea is talked about there? That's one of the most mysterious mysteries uh, anywhere. But there is no heaven and earth. Heaven and earth have fled away. So without heaven and earth, what's this sea? And it, it does appear to be extra dimensional. It appears to be language that uh, speaks of, uh, of a different realm. It seems to be different than the realm of death and Hades. Death and Hades are always linked together like that as a tandem, as a pair. Uh, whereas the sea appears to be a destination for the departed that's different from death and Hades. And so that opens up some questions then. Well, what else might die and need to have a compartment, need to have a place to go besides you know, where, where unbelievers go, where human unbelievers go, see? And so uh, for folks that bother you know, considering such things, uh, it does appear to be in the angelic realm. It most likely uh, references the demons. It references the the Nephilim and their departed. Um, with respect to death and Hades, uh, there's 
when, when, if death is personified, if, if death is a location and Hades is a person, but Hades is also a location sometimes. And so um, really there's a variety of ways you can understand that tandem. But the fact is, these are dead people that have to be judged. Either dead humans, dead angels, dead Nephilim, or, or dead something that has to be judged because they stand before their judge, which means that they're morally accountable. They're, they're part of the cosmos that has to give an account to the, to the Creator. And so my, uh, my consideration is it does apply to the demon realm, the one that tends to have water connected with it in, in, in a variety of different ways, from the pigs that rushed into the, into the water to the flood. It was, it was flood waters that destroyed the Nephilim originally. Um, there's a reference in the Gospels when a demon is cast out and it says, uh, because he's expelled from a human being, it says he wanders through waterless places and then he says, I will go back. And when he returns to that human, he finds the, the place has been swept and put in order. Uh, so he brings along seven extra demons with him to, you know, to really have a demonic frat party or whatever they do when they, when they all get back. So anyway, there's enough references to water that uh, I find those, those connections, plus the fact that the very same word for the abyss refers to either a, an oceanographic, you know, a, a, the abyss of the ocean, or the abyss of the extra-dimensional, the pit that's in, in, uh, in hell as we think of it. So that's Thank a long you. way to say I don't know. <laughs> but I have a lot of uh, considerations with respect to that. Okay. And like a you know, sea is just is enormous. And so the unbelievers, there's an enormous amount of unbelievers, a sea of Yeah, but it is a separate location because there's the dead that are in it and then death and Hades gave up the dead that are in it. Okay. So there's, there's two places for, for the dead in, uh, in that chapter. Okay. And that's also in the new earth, there is no more sea. And so that has to be considered, is that oceanographic or is that related to this dimensional sea? Um, that's another issue. So yeah, we have to stand somewhere when the great white throne. Well, we have to stand, but not somewhere because there's nowhere. <laughs> there's a throne. We're before okay. the throne. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh. Yeah, great question. All right, let's come up here to this unnamed person with their hand raised. Okay, still in Revelations 13, 8. Uh-huh. So at one time, I had written in here from one of my teachings, and I, I think it was here. I mean, I know it was here at Austin Bible Church, but I don't know if it was you, that, that you moved or the person that taught, that taught moved from the foundation of the world from the beginning uh, or from the middle of the sentence to the end. So all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life from the lamb who has been slain from the foundation of the world. Right. Is how it got. So what, what is the right, what is it from Greek? Excellent question. Thank you for asking. And I'll put it on the screen and tell you that um, you can understand it either way, but the word order, um, as most Greek professors like to say, word order doesn't matter until it matters. And then, then uh, you make some observations. So when you highlight this uh, from the foundation of the world, you see that it's in the middle of the verse in English, but it's at the very end of the verse in Greek. It's the very last phrase in Greek. And so with respect to everyone whose name has not been written, that comes before, okay, uh, in the book, 
comes next, and then the book of life, and then the lamb who has been slain is right there. So you have Arneo tu es fagmenu, the lamb who has been slain, apo katabales cosmu, from the foundation of the world. And so that expression is immediately following the lamb who has been slain. So if we're going to take it in a strict word order, that's how we would take it. So everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life of the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. That's the, the word order. But I think, I don't know the motivation for why folks want to move that up to, I think it's because of harmonization with, with chapter 17. Because in chapter uh, 17, the book of life is mentioned as having been written from the foundation of the world. Wasn't that chapter 17? In a different chapter, it is 17.8. And in 17.8, it is everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And so there, very clearly, the book of life from the foundation of the world is there. And that's the order in the Greek as well. So what happens is I think that there's a, a tendency on the part of translators to render it the same way in chapter 13 as it is in chapter 17. But I, I think the word order in chapter 13 is there for a reason. And so I would accept in chapter 13 that it is the Lamb of God who is slain from the foundation of the world. So does that answer? Okay. Yeah, that's consistent with what uh, you had taught before. And, and we discussed this recently, in, in which we'll probably go over again mm -hmm. in Philippians. And so I, when I read through this and was looking at the different, how I had changed it in my Bible. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so then I was confused, like, why... Uh, okay, yes, that's what I was asking is about the right. word order, about the right reading. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, other questions this evening? Going once, going twice. All right, well, thank you. Thank you, Chris. So as we look at these imperatives, starting in verse 4, and let's just chart out where the seven of them are, and then we'll, we'll go back to the very beginning again. So rejoice in the Lord always, that's imperative number one. Again, I will say rejoice, there's imperative number two. So the first two out of the seven are both rejoice. Then it says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, the Lord is near. That's verse 5, and that's our third imperative. And this is the one that's uh, maybe the most difficult to deal with because it's a passive imperative. And passive imperatives are sometimes um, curious things to, to study and then um, really uh, sometimes the most difficult imperatives to obey because we're not the active agent. We're not the one doing it. And that's we'll have to discuss that and we'll do so here tonight. And then uh, imperative number four and five are linked together. The fourth and fifth imperatives are twins. They're twin absolutes and they are linked together with a for nothing and in everything contrast of verse 6. So uh, imperative 4 is be anxious for nothing and imperative 5 is but in everything uh, let your requests be made known to God. 
And then there's mechanisms for doing that, that is by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So, um, But if we're just going to focus in on the imperatives themselves, imperative four is be anxious for nothing, and uh, which is different than saying don't ever be anxious. It doesn't say don't be anxious, it says be anxious. But then it says be anxious for nothing. Okay, And so it's kind of an interesting way of saying that, and then giving the reverse, but in everything, let your requests be made known. Let your requests be made known. And so we have a second time now where letting something be known is the command. Uh, remember, because we're going to see tonight, command number three is let your gentle spirit be known to all men. So how do you let your gentle spirit be known? And if men have to know your gentle spirit and God has to know your requests, that uh, should hopefully spell some things out for us too as far as what we're doing in our prayer life and then what we're doing in our public life, uh, letting our gentleness be known. All right. And then if we are obedient to uh, imperatives 4 and 5, we have a consequence. And uh, the rejoice imperative doesn't have a consequence. It doesn't say rejoice, and if you rejoice, then here's what God will do for you. It just says rejoice and do so twice. And then it says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. There's no consequence for that either. Not that's listed here anyway. But there is an admonition that says, oh, by the way, the Lord is near. And that, that's a threat. <laughs> okay. That's a, it's a friendly threat, but it's a threat nonetheless. The Lord is near. Do you know how close we are to hearing that trumpet? And that's what we're being told there. But then uh, imperatives four and five, be anxious for nothing, but let your request be made known. Those have a consequence. If you obey those two commands, the consequence is then that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so this then becomes a consequence of having this kind of a, of a prayer life. And so we'll look at that as well. And we'll, we'll recognize that verse 7 is not an absolute promise under all circumstances. Verse 7 is a consequence of you and I, it's conditioned upon you and I obeying imperatives 4 and 5. And so uh, don't blame God if, uh, if you seem to not have the peace of Christ working for you or the peace of God working for you. Say, well, where's this peace of God? You promised me this peace of God. Well, Yes, he promised you the peace of God, but he did so contingent upon your being anxious for nothing and in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. So until you start obeying verse uh, 6, don't go blaming God for being faithless on, on not giving you verse 7. Okay, so we'll deal with that. So how many is that? That's five so far. Then six and seven center on our thought processes and these are uh, imperatives on thinking and actions for rapture-ready, standing firm, joy and crown kindred. Uh, in verses 8 and 9, finally, brethren, and with a long string of things, I'm never remembering in the right order, in a long string of things, the imperative is dwell on these things. Let your mind dwell on these things. Think on those things. Keep your mind centered on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And so that's where our mind is supposed to be. Get your mind there. If your mind's not there, get it there. That's what your mind is to be dwelling on. Then the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, again, there's a long 
list of things I'm always getting out of order and reciting in a dyslexic backwards kind of way. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so imperative number seven is practice. Uh, Not just dwell on it, not just think about it, do it. And the the practice imperative then also has a um, consequence that the God of peace will be with you. And that's the consequence of dwelling and practicing those sixth and seventh imperatives. So that's what we're going to be dealing with. That's kind of the the course here, uh, taking us down through verse 9. On Sunday we talked about the first two of these imperatives as far as uh, being a practical how-to. The first two imperatives are rejoice and rejoice again. Uh, Paul has no problem uh, repeating this. Uh, It was previously given back in chapter 3. It was even alluded to in chapter 1. But it was given as an imperative in chapter 3 where Paul says, uh, to write the same thing again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you. So he doesn't mind repeating himself. And uh, he'll do so again here. He'll do so in 1 Thessalonians. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So it's, uh, it is an order. We are expected to be rejoicing. This is not problem-free rejoicing, but testimony to God's grace and resounding to Christ's glory. It's not problem-free rejoicing. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. So if you're waiting for your trials to come to an end so you can start rejoicing, that's the wrong concept. We rejoice even with the trials going on. And the more trials, the more rejoicing. As far as uh, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to, supposed to respond. We as humans don't always do that. But that's uh, what the Scripture says. And so we have the imperative there. Likewise, Matthew 5.12 Blessed are you, happy are you when uh, those persecutions occur. 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 4, these are all the passages dealing with the fact that it's not problem-free rejoicing. That we, uh, with divine viewpoint, as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't, uh, we don't ride the roller coaster that the unbeliever rides, or we shouldn't, whereby uh, the ups and downs of happiness or unhappiness are all uh, in slavery responses to what happens, right? And I love the way that in English you have happen, or happenstance, that uh, somehow most people have connected to our happiness, that they gauge whether they're happy or unhappy based on what happens. And that's, uh, that's a terrible slavery. That uh, has uh, just nothing to do with the plan of God, whereby even though terrible things may be happening, we can still have complete inner joy, complete inner happiness before our Father in heaven. So rejoicing is not a problem-free circumstance. Brings us tonight now to the third imperative. This is point subpoint B then under main point four. Subpoint B. The third imperative is a passive imperative with a reminder of the Lord's proximity. It is a passive imperative with a reminder of the Lord's proximity. And essentially what it says is be so gentle that all humanity can't help but know it. And then don't forget, the Lord is near. All right, the Lord is near. And so it's, uh, it's an admonishment and it's a reminder that he's near in a, you know, a, a, a local proximity. He's nearby. He's not far from any one of us, but he's also near temporally. He's near in time that uh, his return is near. 
And so he's near in, in both concepts that uh, he's, uh, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, so he indwells us. He's near uh, everywhere we go, but he's also near in his return. So as a passive imperative, how do I obey a passive imperative? How do I obey something that I'm not the action, I'm not the one who does the action, right? So in an active voice, the subject does the verb. And I often use punching as my illustration, but that's kind of violent. Sometimes hugging or kissing or something more pleasant. You know, but if you tell person A to do something to person B, that's an active imperative. So you say, um, you know, um, turn to the person to your left and, and punch them, okay? Or whatever. That's an active imperative. Now, a passive imperative is uh, you're not doing it, it's being done to you. And usually uh, in the English, it comes across with, uh, with the word let. Let it happen. Let let the person to your right punch you. Okay, that's a passive imperative, and and so obedience in the active imperative is simple enough because you're told to do something, you go and you do it, and I, and I think that's easy enough. But then in the passive imperative, you're told to let something be done to you, and if you're told to let something be done to you, that throws it entirely into your volitional. Uh, uh, faith rest or, or lack thereof. That throws it entirely into your volitional capacity to, in a sense, not do anything, but uh, you still have to do something. You have to make sure that you're not hindering it from happening. Because uh, once you hear the imperative, the passive imperative, and you think, that doesn't sound fun, <laughs> you know, or why would I want that to happen? Or, well, wait a minute. And so the passive imperative sometimes where you have to not take the active steps to keep it from happening, see, because uh, it's still left for us to obey or disobey. And so in a passive imperative, and there's several of them throughout the New Testament, but in a passive imperative to let something happen or let it be done or or make it so, number one, or, you know, that's almost the, the Star Trek line on that. But the idea is, is that you're going to watch while God does something and, and, um, in this case, let something be known. Let something be known. And so um, to not hinder that, to not uh, overcome that uh, by taking an action that would uh, obscure what should otherwise be seen. All right? So let it be known. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. There's another one. Because you're not the one actively shining the light, but if you let it shine through you, God will shine it through you. See? And so uh, essentially to obey a passive imperative, you just have to stay in fellowship, stay obedient, stay humble, and watch what God does. Okay? And sometimes that's not easy. Sometimes that's not easy because... uh, you know, what if you're, uh, <laughs> what if this gentleness thing is a, is a struggle? And then how do they know it if, if I don't really have it anyway, right? So I've got to foster it and then let it be known. Let it be observed. Let it be observed. All right, so it's kind of a, a public thing. Now let's talk about this. Let's talk about what this gentleness is. You ever study the fruit of the Spirit? You study the uh, Galatians 5? We were there not long ago. Doug wrote a song for it. And uh, you remember the Greek word for gentleness? Prautes, excellent, gold star. That's not the verb here, that's not the term here tonight. <laughs> All right, so if you think you know gentleness, 
This is, uh, this is something different. It's a different kind of gentleness, if you will. It is not prautes, which is number 4240 in Galatians 5. Uh, it is epiakes. Epiakes. Uh, E-P-I-E-K-E-S. Epiakes. And uh, number 1933 is the Strong's number on that. It's only used five times in the New Testament. We can see them tonight. Uh, and uh, Philippians 4, 5, 1 Timothy 3, 3, Titus 3, 2, James 3, 17. That's a big one. And then uh, 1 Peter 2, 18. Now, it is not prautes, but it is linked together in 2 Corinthians 10, 1. It's described very well by Vine. I'm going to read a, a, a lexical entry for you here tonight as we as we look at it. But let's start, before I spoil your thinking on this, let's start with the text itself. And um, let's look at 1 Timothy 3.3. So try to imagine what are the different kinds of gentleness that there could be. If if Epia case is not prautes, well then what's the distinction? What's the are we gonna faint are we gonna paint with a very fine brush so that we have nuances and and and, and differences between epia case and prautes? Well then what exactly are those? What uh there's two different kinds of gentleness and I want to have both. So uh, I want to make sure I'm not confusing my my gentlenesses. All right. First Timothy three three. Uh talking about the overseer. If a man desire, aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, teachable, or able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but epiakes. And here it's, it's the flip side of not pugnacious. Not pugnacious, but gentle. So he's not a striker, he's not a fighter, but he's gentle peaceable, free from the love of money, must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And it goes on all the way down through verse 7 as it relates to the overseer. But this is our use of gentle. It's the kind of gentleness that all of us are commanded to have, and not just the overseers, all of us are commanded to have this gentleness and to have it in such a way that the whole world can see it. So that it's visibly manifest, it's, it's detectable by people that are looking at you. And, uh, and that's, that's quite an imperative uh, when it comes right down to it. Titus 3.2 Titus Titus 3.1 says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, this is our EPA case, showing every consideration for all men. And so there's an aspect of gentleness there. Why is that different from the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness? What are the shades of differences here? Again, it's to malign no one but to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And so in both of these cases here, we've seen something that gets negated. In other words, not pugnacious, but gentle. Or here, to malign no one, but to be peaceable and gentle, showing every consideration for all men. So in both of the cases we've seen so far, this gentleness is like a, uh, 
a, a decision to not uh, claim vengeance, to not claim revenge, to not uh, take matters into your own hands. It really is a, a forbearance kind of gentleness. Uh, James 3.17. In James 3, we're told that there's two kinds of wisdom. There's wisdom from above and there's wisdom from below. And the world's wisdom is horrible. So James 3.13 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Now that's the prautes of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Again, we have a context here whereby the observable behavior is such that other people can recognize it. That gentleness is being displayed. It's not just a fruit attitude, a heart way of thinking, but it's a displayed mannerism. And then it goes on to talk about the world's wisdom here. The wisdom is not from, which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. Again, the behavior is determined by the form of wisdom that's being followed. But then verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then epiakes, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So again, it's a gentleness, but the emphasis seems to be on the actions, on the activity, on the deeds that we're doing that can be observed by others. Finally, 1 Peter 2.18 Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, at the case, but also to those who are unreasonable. <laughs> okay? In other words, you don't just obey your boss if you like him, especially if you don't like him, especially if he's a tyrant, especially if he's just the worst boss you ever had. And for this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. This goes real well with what we were dealing with this morning in terms of political leaders and being subject to the governing authorities that are over you. Now it's not the same as priorities. It's a different word from priorities. It's not the gentleness that is the, the fruit of the Spirit. But when we turn to 2 Corinthians 10.1, we are going to see a link. I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And so here we have the priutes vocabulary where it gets rendered as meekness and we have the uh, epia case. It's not exactly epia case, but it's a cognate form of epia case. It is uh, meekness and gentleness that are combined. All right, so they're both rendered, if they're by themselves, they're both translated gentle. But if you put them together in the same verse, you can't render both of them gentle. So priutes gets renamed meekness and uh, epiakes gets to keep the gentleness expression. All right. I who am meek when face to face with you but bold toward you 
when absent. So that's the issue there. All right. So now, having looked at the verses ourselves, not prejudicing our study based upon what Vine wants to tell us, let's see what Vine wants to tell us. So here's Epikeia. And um, that's the noun. We've also got epiakes there as an adjective. All right, so the adjective is 1933. By the way, this is Vine's Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament Words, and you probably have it in your library. Perhaps it's been out forever. You find it at half-price books for dirt cheap. All right, epiakes is the adjective. Um... Strong's number 1933, from epi and akos, likely denotes seemly, fitting, hence equitable, fair, moderate, forbearing, not insisting on the letter of the law. In other words, you're you're willing to let something go instead of just demanding that justice or that you get yours or, or what have you. It expresses that considerateness that looks humanely and reasonably at the facts of a case. It is rendered gentle, in uh, 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, in contrast to contentiousness. Gentle in Titus 3.2, in association with meekness. In James 3.17, is the quality of the wisdom from above. And these are all the, the passages that we just saw. In association with the good, whereas it's called forbearance in Philippians 4.5 in the revised version. Coming down to the noun, epikeia, Strong's number 1932, uh, denotes fairness, moderation, gentleness, sweet reasonableness. That's how Matthew Arnold put it. It is said of Christ in 2 Corinthians 10.1, the meekness and gentleness of Christ, the sweet reasonableness of Christ, where it is coupled with prautes. Um, trench, if you ever read Trench, this is not that Trench. It's not the thousand-year Trench. This is a cousin of his um, who wrote a whole book on Greek synonyms. He considers that the ideas of equity and justice, which are essential to the meaning, do not adequately express it in English. In contrast with prautes, meekness, which is more especially a temperament or a habit of mind, epikeia represents an active dealing with others. Represents an active dealing with others. And I think that spelled it out for me. When that that clicked in my mind, it made total sense based upon those verses we just read. That you can think of the fruit of the Spirit being a temperament or a habit of mind, but the gentleness as it's expressed towards others speaks of an active dealing. It speaks of not a temperament, but a mannerism when it comes down to that. See, So, um, I appreciated that. So that's EPA case for gentle. Be so gentle in your mannerisms, in your dealings with others. Be so gentle that all humanity can't help but know it. They have to, you have to be gentle and they have to know you're gentle. That's the testimony. The Lord is near. As far as um, let it be known, the verb is gnosko. No surprises there, I don't think. Uh, they're not going to epigonosco or, or oida uh, your gentleness, but they are going to know your gentleness. It is an aorist active imperative, and so it's not continuous action, but it is iterative. It does speak to uh, whatever the occasion happens to be. Gnosco, 1097 is the Strong's number. Let it be known. 
Okay? And, uh, and there's a difference between just demonstrating something and making sure the other person knows it. Because there's things you can demonstrate and the other person may not even know what you're demonstrating. And say, well, I'm, you know, I'm demonstrating this and they don't see it. All right. So the demonstration's not sufficient because you are to let it be known. That's the actual imperative. There's something else, kind of not different verb, but concept is in Second uh, Corinthians three two. It's a passive tense in an all men context. You might recall this, talking about the Corinthians and uh, how they were all excited about credentials. They were all um, they were uh, they, they would have fit in well in Austin. I think they would have uh, the Corinthian believers would have really been comfortable. In a, in a cosmopolitan kind of uh, educated, uh, you know, fancy schmancy kind of sophisticated world like Austin, Texas. And they would have really, really um, thrived uh, in, a, in a world where degrees are thrown around and credentials and, and letters after the name and all those things become very significant. So when Paul asks this in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need a sum, letters of commendation to you or from you? You know, what kind of credentials do we need? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Known and read by all men. Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And so this is a kind of an interesting dynamic too that gets expressed here as far as how Christian ministry should have an impact in a local church as believers are ministered to, as believers are served. The fact that the Word of God does its work in you who believe. The fact that, uh, that believers that are growing in, in grace and knowledge become a, uh, an open book known and read by all men. And that they may not know what they're reading, but they're looking at something and they think, that's, uh, that's not natural. <laughs> All right. Or that's something I don't have. Or that's something I want. What is that? Known and read by all men. So if you're going to let your spirit, your gentle spirit be known, if you're going to let your gentleness be known, it's going to be shown through its actions. The actions of gentleness. All right. The nearness of the Lord. The Lord is near. The nearness of the Lord is yet another indication of rapture imminency. Again, Philippians 4, 5, the Lord is near. This is one of those comments <laughs> that I find, uh, um, what's the word? Poignant? It is... Um, because it doesn't have to be here. It doesn't have to be here. You can just have the imperative sit by itself and say, let your gentle spirit be known by all men. Okay? But the fact that it's there, the Lord is near, just adds one additional admonishment to the, to the picture. And it's actually a phrase you could put in any, every verse of the Bible. You could say, do not get drunk with wine. The Lord is near. But be filled with the Spirit. The Lord is near. Okay? Or do not be foolish, the Lord is near. But understand what the will of the Lord is. The Lord is near. I mean, you could put that 
Lord is near admonishment in front of any command, in front of, I mean, you could attach it to any verse of the Bible. And so the fact that it's here is not accidental. The fact that it is here is, is really geared towards, I think, geared towards a, a uh, component of gentleness that, that, that might not you know, be easy, might not come natural to your humanity. That it might be the reminder necessary. It's almost like um, the need of Zizigus to come alongside uh, Yodia and Seneki. The fact that they were admonished to, to uh, be reconciled wasn't sufficient, so he assigned a helper to, to yoke them back together again, and uh, that he gave them the commands, and then he asked Zizigus to help him out. Same thing here, let your gentle spirit be known. All right, but uh, that might be a, a difficult enough imperative for, uh, for most believers. So uh, he goes ahead and he adds the little element of the Lord is near. Okay. And so whatever it takes, you know, and, and maybe this is a useful device or not. Maybe I'm trying to remember, seems to me that when I was a kid that this was sometimes used, that it was, uh, you know, the thing about being a good person or, or obeying the scriptures or uh, the fact that, um, you know, character is what you are when nobody is watching because who's watching? Jesus is always watching, Right. And so even if you're wherever you are, you're at school or you're at your friend's house or you're whatever, you're camping in the woods, wherever you are, even if your mom and dad aren't there watching over you, Jesus is watching over you. And so that kind of becomes the admonition that you want to, you know, you don't want to commit a sin that Jesus might see you committing, you know. It's to, and I don't know if, if it's useful or not to, to teach kids that way, but I remember that's, my mother would say that, my father would say that, because, you know, I probably needed that. But the whole, the point of, the, of it is, is knowing where can I hide from your presence, where can I run, there's nowhere. God's always there, He's always watching, we're always accountable. And so this uh, expression, Jesus, uh, the Lord is near, I think is designed to reinforce that, and also to remind us of the fact that um, that that the rapture could come tonight, and so all these temptations I have to not be gentle, to be violent, to to punch somebody's lights out because he clearly deserves it. Um, none of that. I mean, seriously, is that what I want to be caught doing when the trumpet sounds? You know how uh, how silly is that? So the Lord is near. I think we have uh, these other passages that that address this as well. If uh, we can take a look at the, and these are different imminency passages than the imminency passages I gave you last week or the week before. Okay, I figured you were bored with those already, so let's get some new ones that also speak to the imminency of the rapture. Because we talked about how previous stewardships had imminency applications, and other uh, dispensations had imminency application. So we've seen several, but I think we got some newer ones here. First Corinthians seven. 29 through 31. Proximity. Rapture imminency. And uh, this is a marriage chapter, the marriage and divorce chapter in 1 Corinthians 7. And uh, with a recognition of the present distress. It says in verse 26, I think then that it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. 
But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say... Yeah, that verse gets some chuckles. And I'm just going to drink my coffee. All right, verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. Another way of saying the Lord is near. All right, that we are in the church age, which is an age of imminent conclusion. The time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. And there's got to be a mindset that we adopt as believer priests of the church age whereby we recognize that it is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment imminency that we're living under. That everything is contingent upon the fact that we may not be here tomorrow, so let's make sure we're, we're walking in the light today. The Lord is near. So there's rapture imminency. Hebrews 10.25 Rapture imminency. This is the famous don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together passage that is very popular among preachers that you know they get to use this to you know to harp on the quit skipping church um, theme in, in a lot of sermons. But I think it misses the mark and we'll deal with this as we get and work our way through Hebrews. Uh, really the issue here is rapture doctrine. And as we are entering within the veil, as we're functioning in our priesthood, we're mindful of the finish line for the body of Christ. We're mindful for when the conclusion to the church will draw near. And so we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. He who promised what? He who promised what? Behold, I come quickly. The last promise of the Bible. The imminency of of the conclusion of our sojourn. He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking rapture doctrine. I believe the episynagogue there is a reference to the rapture like it is in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Not forsaking our assembling together to meet the Lord in the air. Remember, that's what it's about. The, the, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's the ultimate episynagogue. The ultimate epi uh, above assembly synagogue. And until the rapture, none of us are going to be assembled up there. But at the rapture, all of us are going to be assembled up there to meet the Lord in the air. All right. Not forsaking rapture doctrine, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day drawing near. And I think that day is again the rapture, the day drawing near. And so the end of verse 25 defines the first part of verse 25, and I think it fits together in a, in a marvelous way. All right. So it's another indication of rapture imminency. And so we don't want to forsake that. We don't want to forsake rapture doctrine. And that's what happens as you start to get lazy and you start to think, well, you know, I got forever, I got plenty of time. And uh, failing to recognize that under rapture doctrine, the trumpet could sound tonight. And so am I about my father's business today? Am I serving him today? That's the imperative. James 5, verses 8 and 9. Well, here we go again, back to James 5. 
I got a bonus class this week. Sunday night I got to fill in for Cornelius, and so we were in James 5 Sunday night. And um, verse 7 says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now it might be 10,000 years from now, but it might be tonight. So how patient are you going to be? The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. So not just bailing on those early rains, waiting for the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is what? It is near. The coming of the Lord is near. And do not complain, brethren, against one another. Rapture doctrine is the greatest thing to keep from the Yodi and Seneki issues. You know, it keeps you from harboring grudges against your brothers in Christ. There's no time for that. It's stupid anyway. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. You know, man, if you knew Jesus was standing right through that door and about to walk into this room, would you keep all these little petty fights going on and all this other stuff? He is standing at the door. And it's curious, too, that complaining against one another is swift judgment. He says, quit doing that so that you won't be judged. All those complaints against one another. Imminency there in James 5. Imminency in 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. This is all in the concept of imminency. All in the recognition that, hey, you know what? If the trumpet sounds tonight, then whatever this is that's got you all wrapped up around the axle and all kinds of out of source and whatever, they're going to stand before the Bema seat tonight. They'll answer for that. So don't worry about it. Let it go. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. All of this is set in the, in the, uh, in the, context of the end of all things is near. 2 Peter 3. Of course, that's the call to worship every time I get up here. 2 Peter chapter 3. But we have mockers. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And they're going to reject prophecy. They're going to reject the imminency of the rapture. They're going to reject even judgment day, even accountability. The fact that it's been so long in coming, they're comfortable convincing themselves that it's never going to come. And uh, so since it's never going to come and there really is no accountability, well then why not? Life is short. Play hard. Do what you want to do. Have fun. So they're mocking and they're lusting and they're saying, where is the promise of His coming? Where's this rapture you keep talking about? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And it's curious to me how we have reflected here the very um, insanity, the apostasy of, uh, of uniformitarianism that really uh, is descriptive of, of atheistic science today. The whole postmodern world we live in is all this uniformitarian view of just you know, billions of years and everything's the same and gradual changes and blah, blah, blah. Uh, 
total denial of catastrophism, total denial of the fact that the God of the universe intervenes very violently, very quickly, anytime he so chooses. And, uh, and so things like the flood, that can be dismissed because floods don't happen, or the resurrection, that can be dismissed, or the rapture, that can be dismissed. All these things that are, that are just very sudden and catastrophic and violent and powerful and all that, all that is just thrown away because we live in a physical universe with physical laws and everything takes billions of years and, and blah, 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 blah. And so here we have it. All right. And these are just the mockers following after their own lusts. And it's the world that we live in. And so the rest of the chapter is kind of geared to that. The fact that while they maintain this, it escapes their notice. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? You get these know-it-alls that, that tell you everything they know uh, and yet here's something they've failed to observe is that uh, there have been a lot of catastrophes in the past. There have been a lot of instant judgments. There's been a lot of God's hand intervening like uh, the Tohu Wabohu destruction of the angelic earth or the water deluge of, of Noah's flood. That uh, God has, uh, his, uh, God's actually experienced at destroying this place. Okay? He's, uh, he's qualified and well rehearsed at uh, world destruction. And there's another one on the way. The next one will be by fire. And so uh, the world at that time was destroyed being flooded by water. But the next time around it's going to happen by fire. And really what's kept it from happening already? Why hasn't this whole place blown up yet? Goodness knows we deserve it. No, because it's being reserved by His Word. That's by Jesus Christ. The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And why has it been delayed? Because God's a God of grace and He's mercifully been, been waiting. He's not slow, as some count slowness, but He's patient. He's patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repent. Anyway, you can read through the rest of the chapter, and this is my call to worship with looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Finally then, Revelation 22. Revelation 22. Last chapter of the Bible. There is no Revelation 23. All right. And uh, get to see the water of the, uh, the river of the water of life clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb and then in the middle of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month. Look forward to seeing that. The leaves of the tree were for the healing or the health of the nations. All this description. Um, verse 6, He said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show to His bondservants the things which must soon take place. Soon. When was this written? 96 AD? Okay, just a couple days ago. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So here's the promise. I am coming quickly. Down to verse 20. In fact, if you ever study the promises of God, this is the final one that closes the Bible. The last promise in the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We say, amen, Maranatha. 
Amen. Might it even be today, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So the nearness of the Lord is yet another indication of rapture imminency. And it's a, it's a goad to our gentleness. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. All right. When we come back on Sunday, we'll be ready for moving past gentleness. We're going to be talking about the fourth and fifth imperatives, these twin absolutes, the in nothing and in everything imperatives that we have there to not be anxious. We'll describe why uh, anxiousness or worry is a sin when you don't uh, make it a prayer item and surrender it to the Lord. Uh, Care is a positive attribute. When you do take it to the Lord in prayer, you can have a sanctified anxiousness that we call care. Timothy had, uh, Paul said, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will generally be concerned for your welfare. And it's the same Greek word. All right, so uh, don't be worried, but you can be appropriately concerned. And uh, we'll show why the, the, uh, the differences are what they are when you take it to the Lord in prayer and leave it with Him. That turns your worry into a concern and then you, uh, you watch what God does with it. So we'll be there on Sunday morning, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth and the blessing we have to study. And Father, I pray that you would uh, open our eyes to these things. And, and uh, Father, there, there has to be some difference. I believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, that every jot, every tittle has significance. Uh, there are some mockers that think it's a waste of time. Uh, there's some brothers and sisters that really um, they uh, they don't have the same appreciation. They they couldn't care less if it's epiakes or praeutes. As far as they're concerned, it's just gentle as gentle. But Father, uh, you used these words uh, in your wisdom for a reason in the places you use them, and I pray that we would appreciate that and understand that and recognize that even the jots and the tittles are inspired by you as we as we uh, search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. So Father, uh, help us to understand these things, to digest what we've learned, and if we need to review it and look at it again, Father, just help us to, uh, to appreciate the fact that gentleness is both a temperament and a mannerism, and that uh, we can have the, the mental attitude or the temperament. We can also have the, uh, the exhibition of that, the mannerisms that, uh, that can be seen by others. So Father, uh, make these things clear so we can start living them. We can live them out and uh, be obedient to the imperatives you taught us here tonight. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.